great to see you again this morning. I hope you had uh, some good discussion time as you thought and prayed about being Barnabases to one another from yesterday and maybe having a discussion with your mate or your adult children or maybe one of your kids or grandkids about suffering well. Isn't, isn't that an actually a, a really odd sentence put together? Teach them to suffer well. I'll never forget... Um, he was, a, uh, he was our family life pastor, very, very insightful. And um, I'd gone through a difficult time. I think it was when uh, I was only 40. My mom died pretty young. And I'll never forget, he put his arm on my shoulder after I got back from the memorial and all the different things that you go through. And he says, Chip, I pray that you'll really grieve well. Few people do. Great loss demands release. Uh, don't hold back tears. Don't try and push away troubling emotions or memories. I pray you'll really grieve well. I think the same is true of suffering. Uh, I, don't, I think we've sort of bite your upper lip as one, you know, you can be tough, you can make it, or... This is so unfair. How did this happen to you? Uh, I think about those of you that are parents and uh, some of you that are grandparents that are really investing a lot of time with your grandkids. Um, the, the environment of our world is going to demand a generation that takes their faith really seriously. And they're going to have to swim upstream like none of us have had to in our lifetime. And I think our goal is how do we prepare them for that? So to that end, Lord, would you help us to teach them not just values or principles, but to know that they are called to follow in your steps. Lord, that you suffered well, that you learned, that you depended on the Father, not in some uh, supernatural uh, you had an S on your chest, but being fully human in your humanity, you leaned into the power of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty and the grace of the Father, and you learned, just like we learned, obedience through the things that you suffered. Uh, would you teach us now uh, how to fill our days, not with uh, getting things done, but with creatively, uh, powerfully enjoying our work into the Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's, again, a little handout. If you didn't get one, we'll try and get one to you. And probably what you're going to know is every day is I'll have a little handout. And as we get going, I have one fact to get us going and then three questions. Uh, here's the fact. Most of us and most of your children and most of your grandchildren will spend somewhere between 60 to 80% of their waking hours on this planet doing something called work. I mean, once you remove sleep, once you remove your showers, once you remove your eating, once you remove basic necessities of your waking hours, think of that, 60 and for some up to 80% of the waking hours, you work. And so here's two or three questions to get us going. First is, how can we help those that we love live above the daily grind? I mean, the monotony, the idea of they have a job, they get up, 
they go to work, they come home, they grab a bite to eat, they watch a little TV, they go to bed, they get up, they go to work, they get a little bite to eat, they maybe get, become adults so they get to run their kids here and there, then they watch a little TV, then they go to bed, then they get up and they... And what they live for is, I can't wait till it's Friday, until the weekend. And if they follow some of the models of us in the Silicon Valley, that just means that you get up, go early, do extra work along with everything else. How can you help them not have that kind of life? Second question is, why are the great majority of people in America dissatisfied with their jobs? Did some external research. This is, I hope they're wrong. Surveys say that 80% of Americans report that they're either dissatisfied or very disinterested with their work. That it's a means to the end, a necessary evil. They call it, it's a paycheck. You just got to get it done so you can wait till Friday. Third question, how can the place where we spend the majority of our waking hours be transformed from drudgery to delight? And I wanna, I'm gonna try and give you a theology of work that we want to teach our children and our grandchildren. And for some of us, we need to embrace because more is caught than, okay, more is, the answer's taught, okay? <laughs> I'll give you the answer. We'll try this again. You know, you know, when you make these statements and no one responds, it's, it's for us that are insecure, basically. More is caught than... So modeling is how you teach 80 or 90% of all that your kids learn. Yes, you need to teach them. Yes, intentional. Yes, you have a strategy. Yes, you have a game plan. And, and no matter what you say, they basically are going to become like how you act. They'll respond the way you respond. They'll suffer the way that you suffer. They'll work the way that you work. And so I don't know about you, but that's the most motivating thing to walk with God I've ever had in my life. The scary thought, especially when they were little and then not so little that, oh, God, help me. They're going to turn out a lot like me. And that could not be very good. Teach them to work unto the Lord. And as you open your notes, what I want to do is I'll give you a brief theology of work and then let me give you some practical ways to teach your kids to work into the Lord because they're not getting that in our day. A theology of work is, you know, uh, the word uh, work actually, or originally it was a vocation, right? What's your vocation? Do you know where that comes from in Latin? Your vocation is your calling. In the, in the older days, people actually believed and taught and the language would express that everyone has a calling, a calling from God. And, and we, we sort of shifted and got into the sacred versus secular, a calling to use your mind and skills to be an electrician or a plumber or a stay-at-home mom or a software engineer or a CEO, a calling to use your artistic gifts or your musical gifts, a calling to use your verbal gifts, a calling, but that, it's not a job. What you want to do is you want to help your kids discover their calling. The, the thought that God has actually, are you ready? Deposited a personality unique to them. Deposited gifts, natural talents. And as they come to know Christ, then he's going to deposit supernatural spiritual gifts. 
and he's going to actually drop them in a family called yours. And the family that he drops them into, are, are you ready? This is not, you know, this is like my family. My father was an alcoholic. My wife's father was an alcoholic. I mean, we have dysfunction running in every direction. But God will sovereignly use even the dysfunction, the background, the struggles, the environment, the geographical part of the country, and all those are things he's shaping because he has a calling for your son or daughter. He has a calling for your granddaughter or grandson. He's, he's doing all that because he's made them to accomplish a purpose that they're uniquely qualified for because that's how he made them. And then here's the weird thing. If you can help them discover what that is, it's an imperfect science, and fulfill what that is, they make a, may make a lot of money, or they may not. But they will have a job that they will go to that they'll never think of as a job. They will have a sense that this is what God made me to do. And here's the secret. When you do what God made you to do, he gives you this unmistakable joy, and it has this supernatural impact. And you know what? That can be fitting pipes together. It can be fixing a car. See, what we have bought into is that when our kids say, uh, should I go to college or not go to college? What should I major in? Uh, we have one group says, well, it really doesn't matter because I only want you to be... You guys have got that from yesterday. Good job. Or, uh, that's an interesting thing, but you'll never make any money that way. You know how many people, I mean, this is, it's sort of golden handcuffs, got into doing jobs primarily for a good income. They actually got the job. It's a can-do, not a love-to-do. By the way, that's a huge difference. That's a great little line. You might want to write that down. A can-do versus a love-to-do. See, you can be, have ability in something, do it pretty well, Find yourself where you make a significant amount of money, actually get promoted, and then find yourself living in a lifestyle that you can't get out of. And you're a prisoner because it requires this much money to do this job for this lifestyle, and you get up every day and down deep in your gut, you hate it. I don't know about you. I don't want that for any of my kids. Second, all work is sacred. You might jot down 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Apostle Paul would write to that church and say, and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I love it. it was Martin Luther who said, there's nothing more spiritual or unspiritual about a mother diapering a baby, a plumber fixing a leak, or a man preaching God's word. When he talked about the priesthood of believers, he said, done for the glory of God as a sacred calling, None are more holy or less holy than the others. Our work is to flow from God's unique design and the key word is purpose for our lives. Great verse that um, many have not memorized. How's that for an introduction to a verse? Ephesians 2.10. Most of you probably, I would hope, you know, the classic verse on salvation by faith is Ephesians 2.8.9, right? For by grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourself, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. And then the next word is a purpose clause. For you have been created in Christ Jesus for a 
work. And then if you study it carefully, a work that God from the foundations of the earth has prepared in advance for you. See, what you want to do is you want to help your kids grasp, God made me. That doesn't make sense. I mean, if someone put a bunch of tools out in front of you and they all had to do with like pounding, sawing, cutting, and leveling, that it just might be a clue that being a carpenter or, or if it was like pieces of software or musical instruments, each one of your children and grandchildren and each one of you, he's deposited things in you for what? For the good work prepared for you in advance. And, and when you understand what those tools are and realize it, it flows from me. This isn't a TGIF world. This is like, this is what God made me to do. We have a uh, thing that we do with business people and that we're sort of launching with pastors right now. It's called Prime Movers. And we called it Prime Movers because we wanted to start with people that found themselves, uh, Bob Buford was a friend, and they found themselves sort of in that halftime, maybe they were 50, maybe they were 60, maybe they owned a business, maybe they were a CEO, men, women, and they were like, you know what, I just don't need any more money, I, but I, what am I going to do with my life? And we walk them through about a five to six month process, not a Bible study that's facilitated, and they discover, these are my passions, these are my gifts, and we do it with a, a peer group, so everybody has a lot of numbers in their portfolio or letters behind their name, all the things that they never get much truth. You understand, very rich, powerful people get very little truth because very rich, powerful people can fire you and disinherit you and often have a very strong personality and leadership gift that everyone assumes that if they say it, it must be right. And I will tell you, they are some of the most lonely people on the face of the earth that have very few peer relationships that are trusting. And you get five or six of those men or five or six of those women that all have been very, very successful. I have never, we start with a 24-hour deal and we make them turn off all their devices. It's like watching them go through withdrawal. And then they meet about once every three to five weeks for a half day. And I've never been to one of the 24 hours. We have about 500 people that have gone through it in multiple cities in a couple countries. I've never been to a single one where I didn't see one or two men completely break down in tears. Probably they haven't done it in years. Because what we ask them is, they, we do an inventory of tests, and we ask them, what are you really good at? What do you really love to do? And they've, they've had so much pressure of fulfilling so many people's expectations, and then they, some of them have never discovered God's design. They've been good at leading, creating, making money, and it's exciting. Then we say, do you realize that, you know, there's this many people in the world, whether we like it or not, about 1.5 to 2% of them make all the big decisions and shape the world in every country? And for whatever reason, God gave you a level of influence and leadership and money, and guess what? You're not special. People have been treating you special forever. Actually, your stewardship to them who has given much or much more, much more is going to be required. We want to help you discover why he put you on the planet, form a team, and get it done with no reserve. Now, we do that with them, but wouldn't it be way better if you did that with your kids that are 10, 12, 14, 17, 18, 22, 
Should I go to graduate school, not graduate school? What should I do with my life? And what if you could push back all those pressures of how much money does it make or are they really happy? And from early years, especially those of you that have young kids, help them discover what God made them to be and what he made them to do. The Old Testament, the Apostle Paul put it this way. I love it. I am what I am by the grace of God. Wouldn't it be great to say that about yourself? I am what I am by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15.10. And his grace did not prove vain toward me, but I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. The Apostle Paul looked in the mirror, looked at his background, looked at his failures, looked at how he helped murder people, looked at all that he went through, looked at his gifts, looked at his knowledge, and came to the point where I am what I am by the grace of God. That's been my prayer for my life and all my kids. I'd want him to be able to look in the mirror and not say, I wish I looked like her. I wish I could do that. If I only could sing, if I was only smarter in that area, they could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the reason I harp on social media and things with your young children is that is all causing them to do one thing that's always lethal, compare. Comparison for them and for us is the core to carnality. Carnality. Because God didn't make you to be like anyone else. And the moment you compare, you either feel superior, now you're arrogant and self-righteous, or inferior. It doesn't matter which way you go. It produces sin. Produces a break in relationships. The Old Testament roots are Genesis 2, 15. And just to tell you that work came before the fall. Work is not like a punishment. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and says, I want you to be co-regents, co-creators, co-rulers. I want you to express creativity. I want you to rule and subdue and to develop, and I want you to make it beautiful. I made you in my image. This is what I created, and guess what? I'm passing it on to you. By the way, one of the applications, Christians should be the greatest environmentalists in the world. And they wouldn't confuse the creation with the creator. And they would realize that everything is being given to us as a stewardship to use. It doesn't mean you never kill anything or cut anything, but if you cut something, you better plant something. It means that you are in, made in the image of God to develop and grow and make things beautiful. In the New Testament, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. By the way, it's a command. And so you want to teach your kids and your grandkids, and what you want to model is I get up and go to work, or I do work at home for an audience of one. It's not what other people think. It's what God thinks. This is why my kids, when they would do what any of your kids do that what we call the quick cleaning of their room so they can go somewhere right and when you walk in it looks great and then you open the closet and everything falls out then you open a drawer and you go oh my or how about this one you know you different assignments they're to clean the garage and from a distance it looks good and then you realize oh if you pull this out what what about all this and if you pull this out and they don't do it behind or you say to them, it's your job to vacuum, right? 
and they, they vacuum where it's easy, but they don't move anything. And my kids will go, well, no one sees that. Yes, I actually did this. Son, God sees it. <laughs> Dad, are you kidding me? Do you make everything a spiritual issue? I said, here's the deal. You need, you're only nine years old. You need to understand when we work, we don't do it for how I think. You need to work in a way that when you get done, you could step back and say to the God who created you, for your glory, that's my best shot. And, and I don't, I'm not being tried here. That's how you learn to take out the trash. That's how you do the dishes. That's how you make your bed from about five years old on. I mean, I, I'll never forget, um, I adopted my two older boys, and so I became an instant parent, and then we had a couple other kids, and I remember my older boys were like 10 or 11, and we had a couple small ones by then, and, and I, I watched my wife like going crazy, and two kids sitting on a couch, and I thought, I, I think we have a problem with this picture. It just, just dawned on me. And I said, honey, why, why are you doing everybody's laundry? Why are you doing... You understand, if you want to teach your kids to have a great self-esteem, it's not give them 10 trophies and say, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. Self-esteem grows from uh, being challenged and accomplishing things and growing in a sense of confidence. And so it's really amazing. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? I mean, I've got now, I got, man, I got tons of grandkids. I got 12, so you name the age, I'm with you. I got them all, 12 to 18 or 2 to 18. And you know, even my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my eight-year-old, it's when they come to my house, Noah, I really need your help. Yeah, Grandpa, what for? Man, you know, those, those cans I got to take out to the street. Some of them are really big. I, I, I'll get the, you think you could get that one by yourself? Oh, yeah, 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 Grandpa. And he takes it. And, you know, he's, he's, he's like pulling this can. And we take him out to the end. And when he gets done, you'd think, Noah is one big bad dude. And isn't it interesting that when they come over, I watch my wife, they put up the high stools and she, she you know, we have them, we all make pizza and they get to actually do it. See, when you do everything for your children or your grandchildren, this is almost a verbatim quote of hearing this in a class that changed my parenting from Prof. Hendricks. You make them emotional cripples. Don't do anything for your kids or your grandkids that they could do for themselves. It takes longer. It's a hassle. It's messy. And they grow. And they learn. And by the way, for some of you that are purists, yes, there's a few things you do for them, okay? Like, don't, he said, don't let them do anything. So, you know, I guess, a little common sense there. The application, no, no, I'm, I, I'm married to someone who's very, very black and white. Our biggest arguments are, Chip, you said, I said, well, yeah, but, honey, you know, well, you know I'm black and white, so if you don't want to be black and white, then get really clear. Well, you know, gosh, I, I come home at, we eat at 5.30. I come home at 5.37, sit down. It's, you know, to me, eating at 5.30 means 25 after, 35 after, anywhere in the ballpark, you know, to her, 5.30 is like... I mean, we had arguments over these things. Now, imagine on bigger things. Why did you lie to me? What do you mean, why did I lie to you? You said you were going to come home on time. I mean, that we were going to eat at 5.30. And I looked at my wife. It's 5.37. Is that 
Now, by the way, that was early in our marriage. We, we progressed to other areas to argue about. But I only say that because sometimes I make these one-liners, and, and some of you are like, not only do you want to know where the fill-ins really are and why I skipped number three, and by the way, that is why our checkbook has never bounced. That's why we followed through on things. There's great qualities to people who think in very good black and white terms, and I'm thrilled that I married one. But she's had to lighten up a little bit. <laughs> and boy, have I had to tighten up a lot. Well, how do you help your kids uh, discover God's calling? Here's some questions, and there's a lot of resources now. Uh, and and I, I really, um, I just really want to encourage you to ask them these questions. But here's what's underneath of it. What if you became a student of your children? And here, here's the killer, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it out loud. Some of us, uh, my dad was an, an amazing athlete. Uh, they tried to get him out of college after the war to play pro ball, and I've got all these letters, and then I got to see him. He could do anything. And I got some of his genes. And then I had three boys, two of which were pretty athletic, and one that was very musical, who I didn't realize it until he was a grown man. And we're having a conversation, and he's in his, like, early 40s. And he's telling me all the pressure, not that I said it, but just I got excited about athletic stuff. So he, he tried to play basketball with me and the other boys and all my friends, and he tried to do that. He didn't like it. He just did it. And by the way, he had the eye-hand coordination. It was sort of like, I mean, it was painful. So he got strong, and he would just knock people around, which was not really good for pickup basketball either. Uh, he now writes music and has done very well at helping all of us learn to worship God by his music. But I just want to say to dads and moms, the goal is not to figure out how they can become what you want them to become. And the more different they are from you, the harder it is. And the more passions you have, it works the other way. If you're like artsy and musical, and you get some hard-headed, I'm going to play football, and you're going, oh my gosh. Your goal is to be a student of your children. And this is what you say, Lord, you made my son or my daughter or my grandson or my granddaughter before the foundations of the earth for a good work that you prepared for them. And you've equipped them with this toolbox of personality and passions and talents and spiritual gifts. And they're being influenced because of where we live and our family. Would you help me discern so I can cooperate helping this little girl or not so little girl or this young man or little boy become and do what you want them to. Because what happens is they will have great joy. They'll never work a day in their life and they'll bring honor and glory to God because that's the original plan. In fact, having done uh, the memorial service just um, a few days ago, my wife asked me if I would uh, really talk about heaven. And uh, when my dad was dying, uh, he was a believer, uh, was a Marine, hard-charging guy, and came to Christ mid-50s, and privately had a very degenerative, long illness that he died, and 
privately he said, hey, I, know, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm, I'm afraid to die. I'm really afraid to die. And um, I said, well, Dad, you're going you're gonna to go to heaven. He goes, well, so is that like floating on clouds or drinking iced tea with angels? Because I don't mean to be irreverent, but there's, there's nothing that I know about heaven that's very compelling to go there. I mean, Jesus, I mean, and, and the alternative is not good. So I, I want to be with Jesus. I love Jesus, but heaven was this vague. And it, it took me on a journey to study heaven and later became a book. And um, I later got all that I could. And when my dad understood, yes, there's an intermediate heaven. And the moment you die, you're instantly in Jesus' presence and you're cognitive and you'll recognize things. But dad, you need to understand is that changes and then there's a time where he fulfills all his promises and then he comes for his church and dad, there's a new heaven on a new earth and on this new earth, dad, I want you to know is there's songs to sing, there's work to do and what you do now will influence the kind of roles that you have and it'll be a, a lot like the Garden of Eden except way better and completely perfect and it's not like just hanging around. It's, it's real life with real people and a real earth in a perfect environment. And what heaven promises is you'll understand and grasp grace and redemption even beyond what angels have, but it will be the fulfillment of everything God started in Eden. It's going to be awesome, Dad. I think we'll play sports there. I think we'll enjoy things. I think there'll be books to write. God is infinite. We'll keep learning and learning and learning and learning. So you want, you want to help your kids and your grandkids understand, in, in the words of C.S. Lewis, all eternity is the picture of like fishing line that would go out that door and out that door forever and ever and ever. It's called eternity. And this tiny little thing of, their, of all of time is like a dot. You know, just a, just a dot like a pencil would make. And then you have to take an electron microscope and look inside that one little dot called time to find your little 60 years or 82 years or 40 years or 52 years. And that little dot of time, you want to teach them, don't live for the dot, live for the line. And the way you live for the line is not by how many likes you get or what other people think. It's when you discover how you're made and your life is a picture of bringing glory to God, not just in what you say or in spiritual things, but you get up every day and you go not to a job and it's not money and it's not trying to get to TGIF Friday and it's not just a necessary evil so I get to have some fun because pleasure is a great break and a relief. It's a great tour guide. It's a very, very negative taskmaster. You know what it's like to meet someone who's been retired for 20 years that's made a ton of money and looks in you and says, if I knew I was going to live 20 more years, I have squandered the last 20 years of good health trying to get my handicap into single digits. Hitting a little ball around a course. Now, I like to play golf. I think everyone needs a break. I think pleasure has its place and is really important. It's a terrible goal. It's a dead end. If you ever get where you can have as much as you want, it literally will crumble. Be negative. It can't fulfill. So here's the questions to ask your children. It's you want to help them discover their shape. And I believe a guy at Saddleback actually wrote a book on this. And there's lots of tools. First question is, 
what are your, what are your spiritual gifts? There's four major passages, right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 14, Ephesians 4. But you want to, what, what are their spiritual gifts? We have a little course called Your Divine Design where we help people discover for themselves what their spiritual gift is. A lot of tests out there. And even if they're just 80% right and they're 12, 14, 15, 18, find out what that is. Second is your heart. Where's your passion, your desire? What, what do you dream about doing? And of course, their influence, you know, early on, they all want to either be an astronaut or a pro ball player. Here's what's happening in our culture, though. I was uh, speaking up at Santa Clara, and I won't say which one, but it was a Christian organization. And they had about 40, these are all Christian kids seeking to live out their faith. And to introduce everyone, he said, I don't know, maybe there was 35 kids in a circle. He said, real quickly, just tell your name and what's your dream job? So these are... These are the future generation. And here's what I heard, dream jobs. Um, I would like to write a blog about whatever comes to my mind. Uh, I would like to um, be the, a personal assistant to a rock star. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And it just went, uh, I would like... Uh, I would like to be a social media guru where I could only have to work three hours a day. And I began to listen, I just realized, oh my. And these are the kids that are self-professed in a ministry. They have no concept of their calling, no concept of what matters, no concept of eternity. Don't let your kids and grandkids land there. Their passion. One of the hard ones is when their passion disagrees with yours. Early on, um, one of my sons had a passion for music, and I'm, my wife has some gift there, and uh, I have none. And um, so my house and the garage was musicians all over the place. And um, he got to the point where uh, he said to me, after a year of college, I don't want to go to college anymore. I want to be a music musician. So I'm the practical father, well, you know, like one out of 50,000 people ever making music. So, uh, yeah, well, after you have a real job and you can do this and do that and do that so that you have a backup plan. And then he pulls us, Dad, who was it that said, dream a great dream for God? And pursue it with all your heart. Education isn't the issue. It's doing what God made you to do. I think he had a couple years of college. I said, I don't remember, but was that a special speaker? <laughs> no. And uh, I, I, I can still, you know how some of us have those memories of this conversation is I can tell you where he was standing in the kitchen and where I was standing. And where what I preached and then what I actually believed were in conflict. And I remember um, saying to my son Jason, and I mean it was, I want to be, a, I want to write songs for God. I want to, this is what I feel called to do. I don't, I don't need any more college to do that. Well, both my parents were educators. I mean, not just, I mean, master's degrees, then after master's degrees. And, you know, so I'm in, I've got inside my head education, like I'm almost Asian. I, I mean, real, I am. I mean, it's just like, it's so important. I don't mean, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just like different cultures have different stuff. Two years of college, like, I was shaking. And then I realized, what do you believe? 
I said, well, son, if that's what you feel called to do, then I, um, how can I support you? And I, I think, uh, you know, in his case, it worked out pretty well. But even if it didn't, how much of your ego, how much of what other people think, how much of stuff is really geared toward how your kids perform? Why does it matter? Why do I see parents that are committed to the church, but the moment their kid makes the traveling team, we don't see them anymore because sports trumps God. And then you can't figure out why, okay, I've got a couple of friends who, yes, and they got a scholarship. Have you ever been to a major university and been on a competitive team and understand what that world is like and where the values are? If you're called to do that, that's great, but they better be well prepared because all my personal friends whose kids went down that track lost their faith. So very challenging. We've got to be very clear about how do we help our kids discern what God wants them to do. Uh, there's an aptitude um, you know, what are they good at? There's a lot of tests, you know, whether it's DISC or uh, strength finders. You, you, you want them to have these conversations. Don't get where they're 18 and should I go here, should I go here? Because their brain isn't even fully developed. They're asking questions like, well, you know, I really, Bobby's going to this school, so maybe I should go to that school because Bobby and I are friends. Not a good decision. Or Julie, I'm kind of in love with Julie. We've been dating like three months. I'm sure we're going to be married. So wherever she's going to do you, you want to help them go through this process where, you know, from early on, they're starting to understand, well, these are my spiritual gifts. These are my passions. This is what really matters to me. This is what I'm good at. And then you want to uh, encourage them to get honest, wise counsel about who they are and where they fit. Uh, for my son, Jason, it was grasping. He was so passionate that he needed to follow that. Uh, for my daughter, Annie, I, her personality was one where, wow, we understood she needs to be in this kind of environment instead of that kind of environment. Um, wise counsel, it was, you know, seeing, hey, how do you expose them to people who do what they think they want to do? And, and do a ride-along. And, and, you know, maybe it's not a ride-along with a policeman, but it's a ride-along with an architect. Or I, I had one son who got interested in something, and so I said, well, why don't you volunteer? And so he started volunteering with a physical therapist, and all he was was a gopher. Well, he's a physical therapist today. He was enamored. He took one class about the human body. He goes, Dad, this is awesome. I said, well, why don't you explore that? That's, that's coaching. You want to help them. Help them be willing to move out of their comfort zone to fulfill their divine purpose. Uh, they will hit times where they will be, where they just will need a nudge. And the nudge will have to come from you. Uh, my one son who's the physical therapist, uh, this is an inside, not really a joke, but um, there's a tremendous, very excellent uh, community college, very, was real good from all I knew, but um, there was a sort of like you would take like one or two classes, and if you saw a car with like seven or, it's a two-year school, and they'd have like seven or eight stickers, in other words, they'd been there for seven years, so what you do is you take one or two classes and you surf, and then you work part-time somewhere, 
Then you take one or two classes the next year and surf and, and work part-time somewhere. And uh, he had been through his first year and all of his buddies were going down that path. And he was one that, uh, like he, he was fearful. He was just a fearful kid. So it was like, no, when he was little, you put on those roller skates and you can't come back in till noon. It was like, son, you're 11 years old. You have to learn to ride your bike. I mean, he was just fearful. And so I remember after that year, and I, you know, right, you see the trajectory, you see who they're hanging out with, and he was a good student, and I said, here's the deal. We're going to determine, you can pray about where to go to school and what you want to explore, but it's not going to be at Cabrillo. Not because it's not a good school, but th there's the path. So you give me about three options, we'll visit some places, and, we'll t and he ended up, it was when he got away from home, when he had to develop the confidence when he began to grow, when there was an environment that he could pursue what God made him to do. And I, I will tell you, each of my kids at this point, with some mishaps, and I tried this and do that and do that, is I think most of them would say, I love what I get to do. My son Jason goes, I can't believe they pay me to write songs and the people that I get to work with. Or, you know, every, every day, you know, I'm talking with people and, you know, it's a, it's a rotator cuff or it's a knee replacement, but... It's the, it's the personal side. I get to work with the body. I get to see how God changes people and heals their body. Those are my stories. What are yours? What do you want to see your kids and grandkids do? How do you channel what they can be and how they can grow and help them discover who God made them to be? The lie is that you are what you do. You know, if we went outside and maybe at the, as we grab donuts the next day or so, if you talk to people, especially if they're not retired, here's what we'll hear. I am an electrician. I am a coach. I am a housewife. I am a software developer. I am. I got news for you. That's what you do. See, the lie is... You are what you do. Here's the truth. You want your kids to do what they are. Help them discover, do what you are. A called son or daughter with a set, a toolbox of gifts and passions and personality for a very specific calling where each and every day, what you do, how you do it brings glory to God. And that's the last fill-in. The life message is, contrary to TGIF, you are, you were created to work. And I would encourage you, as you look at the back, there's some, uh, some questions. There's a couple that you could have with a grandson or with one of your sons or daughters, especially uh, question number four on the back. I, uh, I learned, uh, I went to seminary and it was very helpful but I had a bricklayer who discipled me in college and then he moved to another campus and said, would you like to go and learn to do it? And I said, yes, I wanna, whatever I do, I, I wanna be a disciple maker. And I learned from him that every single Christian's in full-time ministry. It's, I mean, he was, he was an actual bricklayer. And as I got with him, uh, the first, um, you know, there was no teaching, coaching jobs open at the time. And so I was his mud, I mixed mud for him. 
And he, I, I didn't really appreciate it because he had this mixer. He goes, ah, that takes too much time. We have to clean it out. You just do it. So I did, and then I would take the bricks of tongs, and we would build, you know, the Haydite block, and it's the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And so we were doing a foundation, and we had it up to about two and a half feet all the way around. And uh, he came in, and, you know, he could get that line, and, you know, everything he taught me. And he snaps this and snaps that, looks at it, crosses his arms. And then he walked over with those big work boots and kicks over the wall. What are you doing? Dave kicks over the wall, kicks over the wall. I said, Dave, what are you doing? I mean, it took us like two days to do that. And I mixed all that mud and I carried all those blocks. And I forget what it was. He goes, well, it's, you know, an inch out of square. I said, well, does that violate the code? He goes, no. I said, well, what are you doing then? And as calm as he could be, he looked at me and goes, I'm not building houses for the code. I have an audience of one, Chip. When I look at my work, if I don't think God is pleased with it, then I do it over. You know what? You can preach till you're blue in the face. That experience changed the course of my life. That's what you want your kids to get. Lord, help us to work unto you and help us to help our children discover what you made them to do. Amen.